Take your Bibles and find your way to the book of Numbers. The book of Numbers. You don't get there very often, do you? I want to talk to you briefly this morning about the gospel by Numbers. The gospel by Numbers. Numbers chapter 5. <coughs> Numbers chapter 5. We're going to look at verses 1 through 5. If you're there, say amen. amen. That was pitiful. <laughs> There you go. Because oh, you're not there. There you go. All right, here we go. Numbers chapter 5, look at verse 1. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Command the children of Israel that they put out of the camp. Everyone say, out of the camp. That they put out of the camp. Now, here's three categories of people that cannot stay. Put out of the camp every leper, everyone who has a discharge, and whoever becomes defiled by a corpse. You shall put out both male and female. You shall put them outside the camp, that they may not defile the camps in the midst of which I dwell. And the children of Israel did so, and put them outside the camp, as the Lord spoke to Moses. So the children of Israel did. Numbers is a strange book. It's a book full of sand and history. And as Americans, we we don't we are not big fans of history for whatever reason. Matter of fact, I think we take the the idea of history from um, Henry Ford, who said history is bunk. There's a British historian said that said this. He said um, that wars are God's way of teaching Americans history and geography. <laughs> That's how much we like it. But I like what Martin Luther King Jr. said about history. He said, we are not makers of history. Instead, we are made by history. Think about that for a minute. We're not makers of history. We are made by history. Napoleon Bonaparte put it a little bit differently. Uh, when he said, history is a set of lies agreed upon. <laughs> so no matter how you approach history, when you come to the book of Numbers, we might not appreciate it for what it is because of our strange relationship with history. However, the Apostle Paul says in the New Testament that everything that happened to the people of the Old Testament happened for our instruction. They're to teach us something. So I want to share with you today what I simply call the gospel by numbers. Um, and if you look at this, it's pretty simple, isn't it? What God is saying is you've got to imagine about five and a half million people. That's about how many we, we think left Egypt. About five and a half million folks. That's a big crowd, isn't it? And in this group, God said, look, when, when someone has leprosy, if they have a discharge, in other words, if they have a sore or something that's leaking or oozing, or if they touch a dead body, where are they to go? Say it, church. Outside the camp. Put them out. And we look at that and we think, well, that's kind of harsh, God. Isn't it? I mean, it, that, that, almost, that almost sounds unloving. Yeah, yes, I would. Working for the funeral home, I would live outside the camp. That is for sure. We look at this and we think, boy, God's not being very loving, not very kind here. But, but what we've got to ask ourselves, what is God really saying? What is he teaching? And in your bulletin this morning, there's a little outline in there. And really, he's saying three things. There are three purposes for these commands. 
there is a practical purpose. There is also a theological purpose. It tells us something about God. And then there is third in here, there is a, what we call a Christological purpose, which means it speaks of Christ himself. It teaches us something about Christ. So let, let's run into this. And first of all, let's talk about the fact that there was, it was a practical purpose for these commands. Again, five and a half million people. If you got leprosy, if someone died from what we would call today a communicable disease, um, or if someone has um, a discharge of blood or infection, you need to understand that it would not take long with people living in close proximity with each other. They did not have the modern conveniences of antibiotics and modern medicine, which really are a grace and a gifting of a good God to our society today. They did not have that, so God commanded that they be put outside the camp. Why? In order to spare literally tens of hundreds of thousands of lives. Those kinds of diseases could have literally spread through that camp like wildfire. Does that make sense this morning? So there's a practical purpose. The only way to deal with these types of things is through quarantine. And so there's a very practical purpose here. And I want to say, we can look at this and say, wow, God is just being so harsh and cruel to do this. But no, I want you to understand that God is being good and right and wise and kind to demand that these three groups of people function outside of the camp, outside of the fellowship. So God was not merely acting as a physician here, though. He had something to teach us through these laws. There wasn't just a practical purpose. There was also a theological purpose here. These laws teach us something about God himself. The first thing that it teaches us about God is that God is holy. Everybody say holy. Holy. What does that mean that God is holy? It means that he is without sin. And these defilement laws that we find in the book of Numbers and Deuteronomy and even in Leviticus, they speak of a God who is undefiled and does not, listen to this now, and does not dwell with those who are defiled. Did you catch that? The defilement laws teach us that God is undefiled and he does not dwell with those who are defiled. So in verse 3, we see that that they must go outside the camp. And it's interesting when you look at verse 3, it says that they will not defile the camp, this is important, where I dwell. Where God is in the midst, this defilement cannot be. They are defiled, God is saying, and I am not. Therefore, they must leave because I'm staying. Are you, does this make sense this morning? These are the defilement laws. And I want to tell you something. Sin defiles. Did you, did you realize that this morning? How defiling sin is. It brings about that which God did not intend. So in this law of exclusion, we get a graphic picture of what defilement does in our relationship with God. Even in Revelation 21, verse 27, it tells us very clearly that nothing unclean, detestable, and false will enter heaven where God dwells. It points to this defilement. And in our sin, if not dealt with, listen to me, it excludes us for eternity, doesn't it? It's an eternal exclusion. It's an eternal quarantine. That's what makes heaven heaven. There's no sin there. 
What a beautiful thing that is. So we have to understand that God is holy, and it applies to everybody, even Moses' sister. You remember Miriam? She was a prophetess. She led them across behind Moses, the Red Sea, and she's the one that took the tambourine and sang and led them in worship. And yet when she spoke out against God's man, God said, hey, I am holy and my mediator is holy. And she was stuck with leprosy. And even Miriam had to go where, church? Outside the camp. So nobody is excluded. So it teaches us theologically that God is holy. It also teaches us something else, that God is present. That God is present. He said that God is present inside this camp with the people. He's right there. He said, I am with you. And if you recall back when Moses went to get the law and the children of Israel were down in the valley and they, and they made the, the golden calf and God told Moses what's going on down there. Remember what happened? And God told Moses, okay, you know what? I'm, I'm done with these people. I am done. I'm going to go down there. I'm going to wipe them off the face of the earth and I'm going to start a new nation with you. Remember what Moses said? Please don't do that, God. Because your name is on those people. So then God says to Moses, okay, all right, I won't. I won't do it, but here's the deal. I'll lead you to the promised land, but I will not not enter the promised land with you. Because God says, I can't be present with people who are defiled by sin. Now here's the truth. Most of us today, most of the evangelical church today say, okay, we get the promised land. God's not there, but we get the promised land. That's good. That's a good deal. You know what Moses said? Kill us now. Just kill us now, God, because listen to me, the promised land is not the promised land without the promise giver and the promise keeper. Moses said, hey, Moses had the right perspective. God, kill us now. We'd rather die out here than to go to the promised land without you because without you, the promised land is no better than this desert that we've been living in all these years. God is present. He said, I dwell with my people in the midst of the camp. That's right where God was, right in the middle of his people. And because God was there, that which was defiled could not be. Those who were ritually defiled had to go outside the camp because God dwelt inside the camp. So it teaches us that God is holy, that God is present. And where God is present, sin cannot be, defilement cannot be. But it teaches us one more thing, and this is so key. It teaches us theologically that God has spoken. God has spoken. I want you to imagine, you know, I want you to take the Bible glasses off for a minute. And I want you to think about what this might look like. I think, I think sometimes we read the Bible with Bible glasses on. Because we know what happens at the end of the story. We don't really put it into practice in our real life. We don't imagine what it would have been like. Samuel, come up here. My son Sam, he might make it to 12 in a few weeks. But I want you to imagine that, come on up here with me, that, that here we are, we're, we're with the children of Israel, and we're, we're walking through the, the wilderness. And I, know, I get up one morning, I notice that Sam's got a white patch on his arm. My son. And I know what that white patch is. Somehow... He's contracted leprosy. Now, the only safe place is inside the camp. But here's the problem. I'm a God-fearing Israelite, and God has spoken. And so I had to look at my son, my boy, 
and say, Sam, you got to go. Outside the camp. You can't stay here. Because our God has spoken. And we must do all that he says. Feels a little different now, doesn't it? And look that boy in his eyes and say, Now, son, God's going to take care of you outside of that camp. Go. Can you imagine that, folks? Take those, that's what it feels like to take those Bible glasses off. And I want you to know it happened time and time again. Husbands looked into the eyes of their wives and sent them outside of the camp for no other reason than that God had spoken. And I, I'm not going to lie to you. As I walked that through in my mind, I wonder what I have obeyed like they did. Do you know what we do? We come to situations where it's blatant obedience or disobedience. God's word is clear. And we renegotiate the word, don't we? Instead of obey, we find a different way to look at it so we don't feel so bad about what we know is disobedience. That's what we would do. The children of Israel obeyed because God was holy. God was present. And God had spoken. It's also given for what I call a Christological pur purpose. It tells us something about Jesus Christ. You say, now wait a minute, preacher. What in the world does leprosy, um, an, an issue, of, an issue uh, a, a weeping sore, and, a, and dead people, what does that got to do with Jesus? I mean, I, I'm, I'm, I'm missing something here. Well, you got to turn over to the book of Luke. Go to the New Testament. Do you all remember when Jesus was, had died and was resurrected early in the morning? And, 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 and it's my favorite history of that morning. It's not Mary coming to the tomb. It's Jesus walking down the road that leads to Emmaus, a little town near Jerusalem. And there's two guys there walking. And they're discussing everything that had just happened and how disappointed they were. And Jesus comes up and says, what are you all talking about? And they, and they basically said, what, have you been living under a rock the last few days? How in the world do you not know what's been going on here? We're talking about Jesus. We thought he was the Christ, and now he's dead. Now we don't know what to think. And the Bible says that Jesus, beginning with the prophets, what's the prophets? Old Testament. He, beginning with the prophets, he revealed himself to them through the Old Testament. So then we go to the book of Luke. And this is exactly what Jesus is doing. Now, Luke here, Luke knows a little something about Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy. He knows this something because being a physician, Luke was a doctor, he knew something about these defilement laws. He knew the practical purposes. So he had an understanding. And he knew, these, he knew this law in Numbers. And he had it in mind when he writes about, listen, check this out, about a man with leprosy about a woman with an issue of blood and about a dead little girl. <laughs> and what are the three things? Yeah, there it is. So look at it, Luke chapter 5 and verse 12. You see, if you turn there, it's on the screen too. It says this, And it happened that when he was in a certain city, behold, a man who was full of what, church? Leprosy, full of leprosy. He didn't just have a white spot. This guy was covered. 
he saw Jesus, and what did he do? He fell on his face, and he implored him, saying, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Get the picture? This guy's a disaster. He's covered with leprosy. And he falls on his face, and he begs Jesus to heal him. Look at the next verse. This is the, this is the amazing thing. What does the Bible say? Then he, that's Jesus, put out his hand. Well, wait a minute, Jesus. Don't you know what Numbers chapter 5 says? Don't touch him, because if you touch him, you are now defiled. And now both of you have to go where, church? Outside the camp. This is the law. There's reasons we have these laws in our society, Jesus. Don't touch him. And what does the Bible say he did? By the way, did he have to touch him? No way. All he had to do was say, leprosy be gone. And what would have happened? Guy would have looked like, had skin like a baby. Doesn't do that, does he? No, because he wants to show that he is the fulfillment of the law. He says, and he put out his hand and he touched him, saying, I'm willing. Be cleansed. And immediately, check this out, read it with me. The leprosy, what? Left him. Immediately the leprosy left him. So we see this situation, it's crazy. Everyone in the crowd say, don't touch him, you'll become defiled. But when, listen, when Jesus, the God-man, touches that which is defiled, not only does Jesus not become defiled, that which is defiled becomes whole. Do we not serve an amazing God this morning? You see, the law, all the law could do was, A, tell you that you had leprosy, B, tell you what you had to do because you had leprosy, you had to go where, church? Outside the camp, and then see if by some miracle God healed you, it told you the steps that you had to walk through in order for the priest to check you out to make sure that you were clean and could come back inside the camp. That's all the law could do. But did you notice there was something big missing? The law couldn't heal you of your leprosy. The law had no power to fix you. The law only had the power to tell you what is going to happen to you because you are broken. And I want to tell you today, it's still the same. The law cannot fix you. It can only reveal your brokenness. Only God, only Jesus Christ can heal you. Jesus can do what the law could not do. He could make the leper clean. Now you're in Luke. Flip over a couple pages and go to chapter 8. Chapter 8, beginning in, I think it's verse 40, we have the account of, of Jair- Jairus' daughter. The Bible says, and so it was when Jesus returned, that the multitude welcomed him. So there's a lot of people, for they were all waiting for him. So Jesus comes back to the area, and, and everybody's waiting for him. And behold, there came a man named Jairus, and he was a ruler of the synagogue. So this guy comes to Jesus, and he fell down. You notice a you notice a pattern here? He falls down at the, Jesus' feet, and he begged him to come to his house. Why does he so badly want him to come to his house? Verse 42, for he had an only daughter about 12 years of age, and she was dying. Isn't it amazing? Isn't it amazing how much we know our need when someone we love is in trouble? So here's what he said. So he, he asked Jesus, come to my house and heal my daughter. You're, you're our only hope. And so, so Jesus, I want you to get this picture. He's trying to get to Jairus' house. Where's he going, church? Jairus' house. But, but there's all these people all around him. And as the Bible says, but as he went, what did the multitudes do? What does that mean? They, they're all around him. He, he's in this crowd, and he's trying to get through. But 
He's trying to get to Jairus' house. The little girl is dying, but there's people all around him, and, and it's a slow process. By the way, stop him for a minute. What are you thinking if you're Jairus? I'm wanting to, I'm wanting to play lineman here and knock some people over and say, Jesus, I'll block you, run. <laughs> right? That's what I'd be doing as a dad. How about you? But look what happens. Now, a woman having a flow of blood for 12 years, she's got an issue of blood. How long has she had at church? By the way, how old is Jairus' daughter? Interesting. She's had this flow of blood as long as Jairus' daughter has been alive. And there is a connection. Twelve years she's got it. And what does she do? She spent all her money, all her livelihood on physicians, and she couldn't be healed by any. Isn't it interesting that Luke chooses to tell us that the health care of his day was no better than the health care of ours? <laughs> Both systems were broken. She had spent all her money, and she was no better for it. She was destitute. She was desperate. She was dying. Look what happens. So what does she do? She comes from behind him. And she what? What's it say? She touched the border of his garment. Now the border of Jesus' garment, there were these little tassels on it. It's called the tzitzit. That's all she did was just, just touch the hem of the garment. And this is, and, and look what the Bible says. And immediately, when did this happen, church? Right away, her flow of blood stopped. She knew she was, she was healed. Now look at this. And Jesus said, what did Jesus say? Who touched me? And when all denied it, Peter and those with him said what? Master, the multitudes throng and press you, and you say, who touched me? Now, I know. That's all nice, cleaned up English. Let me tell you how that happened. Peter is like, are you serious? Everybody touched you. <laughs> we all touched you. There's thousands of people. What do you mean who touched you? I mean, can you see this? Peter's just trying to, Peter's very fleshly worldly. He's just trying to get Jesus to Jairus' house so he can fix that problem. And then for goodness sake, they can go have some lunch. He's hungry. <laughs> right? Peter just wants to get Jesus there and get this thing done so they can go do whatever they're going to do. And, and what do you mean? Who, are you serious who touched you? Everybody touched you. But look what Jesus said. Mm-mm. Jesus says, no, not like that. Somebody touched me because I perceive what, church? Power. I perceive power going out from me. S- somebody touched him in faith. And look what happened. So now when the woman saw that she was not hidden when the, when the, when the gig was up, she came trembling. Oh, here, here it is. Look at this. Falling down before him. Here's a pattern, isn't it? And what, what happened? She declared to him in the presence of all the people the reason she had touched him and how she was healed immediately. And he said to her, daughter, be of good cheer. Your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Here it is. She's got an issue of blood. She touches him. Don't touch. You touch. You both go where? Outside the gate. Outside the camp. But instead of Jesus being defiled, the one who is defiled is now clean. It's the effect of God, the Son of God on humanity. But we still got an issue, don't we? The lady's healed of her 12-year disease, but there's a 12-year-old daughter who's still dying. And, and, and just, again, step out of it for a minute. Take the Sunday school Bible glasses off. Imagine that's your 12-year-old daughter, your only child, and she's dying. And, and now Jesus has just stopped and, done all, and, and taken all this time 
to deal with this woman. And all you want to do is get the prophet to your house so that he might heal your daughter, for goodness sake. I'm thinking Jairus is losing his mind at this point. And then things go from bad. Look at the next verse. And while he was speaking, while Jesus is just declaring his blessing on this woman, someone came from the ruler of the synagogue's house, and here was the message. Your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher. You're too late. Oh, he was right there. This woman had just not stopped him. Leave, leave, leave the teacher be. Because you might be able to cleanse a leper. You might be able to heal a flow of blood. But nobody can do anything about death. Death is the ultimate victor. Look what Jesus says. He hears all this. But when Jesus heard it, he answered him saying, this is so key. Do not be, what? Afraid. Only believe. You can have faith or you can have fear, but you cannot have both. And if you believe, and she will be made well. Well, well, Didn't you hear what they said? She's dead. Look what happens. Next verse. But when he, that's Jesus, came into the house, he permitted no one to go in except Peter, James, and John. And the father and mother of the little girl. And the Bible says that they laughed at Jesus when he said that. Nobody beats death. So in this inner room with this dead little girl, you have Peter, James, and John, and then you've got mom and dad, Jesus, and a dead little 12-year-old girl. Does it get much sadder than that? Now look what happened. Now all wept for her, mourned. But he said, do not weep. She is not dead, but sleeping. Look at this next verse. And they ridiculed him, knowing that she was dead. They said, you don't even know what you're talking about. But he put them all outside. The only ones inside are Peter, James, and John, mom and dad, Jesus, and a little dead girl. And notice what it says. He took her what? If you touch the dead... You're defiled, and you go where? Outside the camp. But he touches her, and here's what he says. And he called, saying, little girl, little maid, arise. It's like you would do to wake him up in the morning. I go into little Emma's room in the morning, and I put my forehead on her forehead, and I say, rise and shine, beautiful. It's going to be a great day. He woke her up. And look what happened. Was she dead? Was she dead? Oh, yeah. What's it say? Then her spirit returned. She was already, she was already in the waiting place, waiting, waiting for the, the sacrifice and resurrection of Jesus. She was in Abraham's bosom. Then her spirit returned. I wonder what that trip was like. And she arose what? Immediately. And he commanded that she be given something to eat. Isn't that something? Isn't that something? Here she is, a dead girl. Jesus touches her, takes her by the hand. He doesn't come become unclean. Instead, she 
who was dead becomes what? Alive. Not only is Jesus not defiled, the girl is no longer dead. And Luke here, Dr. Luke here is screaming. He is screaming this to us through the pages of Scripture. There, this is a mediator who can do things that Moses and the law could never do. The priests couldn't do. The prophets couldn't do. This is the Son of God. The law says, don't touch, you'll be defiled. Jesus comes along, the Son of God. Not only does he touch, and not only is he not defiled, that which is defiled is made whole, is made clean, is made alive. And it's exactly what Luke is telling us today. And here's, here's the message for you and I today. When we bring people to Jesus, we need to know that Jesus knows what to do with them. You with me? We need to know that we have a high priest who can step into their shame. That we have a high priest who can come into their death and speak life. Now, not only will this not affect Jesus, instead Jesus will affect them. That no matter what has happened, we have a God who can and will, is ready and able to forgive, to make whole, and to bring life where there was only death. We come to Jesus in our defilement. And we say what Peter said. <laughs> I love Peter because he and I, are, we're, we're apparently long-lost relatives. Because when Peter, Jesus calls Peter the first time and he catches all those fish, remember this? First thing he does, he gets to shore and he says to Jesus, Hey, depart from me, <laughs> for I'm an unclean man. I'm a wicked man. You and I, you're obviously holy. It's obvious that I'm not. I don't want to mess you up. What did Jesus say? Brother, you ain't messing me up. I'm going to make you clean. Follow me. I'm going to make you fishers of men. That's the God we serve. But I want you to notice one more thing. And it's on that screen there. And that comes from the book of Hebrews, chapter 13 and verse 10. And this, is, this is key. Because where do you go when you are defiled? Say it with me. Outside the camp. Don't miss this. That which is defiled, because God is there, God is holy, God is present, and God has spoken. That which is defiled has no place in God. Are you with me? Look what the scripture says. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin. What do we do with those bodies of the sin sacrifices? They are burned where, church? They're burned outside the camp. And so what do we do? Where did Jesus suffer? He suffered outside the camp. He out suffered outside of Jerusalem. Golgotha is not inside the city gates. It's outside the camp. It's outside the city. And the historian said, you knew one thing about a man who was carrying a cross, walking outside the city gates. You knew he wasn't coming back. Jesus, the Son of God, goes outside the gates. And he suffers out there. He says, therefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood. Where did he suffer, church? Outside that gate. And so what do we do as a result? 
Look at the result of that. We go out there with him. In verse 13, we, we embrace that reproach that we might lead others to Christ. This is the gospel by numbers. And I want to close with this. Are you all familiar with the Aaronic blessing? I put it in the bulletin for you, if you're not. It's a priestly blessing that was given to the nation of Israel. The end of their feasts and sacrifices. The blessing of Aaron. It's called the Aaronic blessing because Aaron, it was given to Aaron. That priest would stand up and would lift his hand over the congregation of Israel, the nation. And he would say these words, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace. It was the benediction. It was the conclusion of the sacrifice. And I want you to listen this morning. The only way that ironic blessing can be fulfilled is if someone bears their reproach. If an undefiled one bears their defilement. And Jesus said, I want to do that for them. So the sinless son of God hears not the Lord bless you and keep you, but he hears as the Lord curse you and cut you off so that I can hear the Lord bless you and keep you. The sinless son of God does not hear the Lord lift up his countenance upon you, but instead he hears the Lord turn his face away from you that you might bear my wrath and have no peace that you might be cut off from my presence and bear their reproach so that they might be made clean. The Bible says that he who knew no sin became sin for us. That we might be made the righteousness of God through him. Oh, when he suffered, he went outside the camp for me. And I ask you today, will we go outside the camp to those who live out there in their defilement? And in their reproach. And we, will we tell them there is one who has suffered out here for you. That you might be enjoined to the presence and people of God. This is the gospel by numbers. Every head bowed and every eye closed. Nobody looking around. Don't always do this. But today I will. Are you here today? And are you still in your sin? Are you here today and are you still in your defilement? You say, Pastor, I have never asked the Lord to forgive me. I have never received the death of Jesus in my behalf. I, I'm not a follower of Christ, and I know that. Oh, I've gone through some rituals. Maybe you were baptized. Maybe you were confirmed, depending on your background. Maybe you said the sinner's prayer like I did when I was a little kid. But you know in your heart of hearts you don't know him. You're here today and say, Pastor, I want to this day, I want to invite the suffering of Jesus in my place. I want to admit that I'm a sinner 
And I want to accept Jesus' death in my place. If that's you this morning, say, you know what? The Lord's calling me. To, I feel that in my heart. That I need to know Christ today. If that's you today, I just want you to raise your hand right where you are. Anybody? Raise that hand. Father, I come to you today thanking you that Jesus Christ bore our reproach. And he did it. He suffered outside that gate that we might be made clean and whole. For these that raise their hand, Lord, I pray that right now as they confess Christ as Savior and Lord, that they invite Jesus to be their rescuer and their forgiver and their king. That you will do something in them that only you can do. You will bring healing where there is hurt and hope where there is despair and cleansing where sin has defiled. And we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Head still bowed, eyes still closed. We're going to have communion here in just a minute. The Bible says that we ought to examine our hearts.